Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian interview series. I'm Fiona Sutherland, dietitian from Melbourne, Australia and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I interview dietitians from all over the world who are experts in health at every size, the non-diet approach and mindfulness-based practice. These are a collection of interviews by a dietitian for dietitians and nutritionists so that we can build a strong community of wonderful professionals who share an inclusive vision of well-being for everybody in everybody. Thanks so much for joining me. Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series. Today I'll be introducing you to the wonderful Deb Blakely who is a dietitian from Brisbane, Australia. Deb is a family-based dietitian and she works with whole families. Traditionally probably we know dietitians who work with families as pediatric dietitians and Deb will explain to you why she calls herself a family dietitian. Deb is somebody who I find incredibly inspiring and she's super passionate about supporting parents, carers and early childhood educators to positively and joyfully connect or reconnect with food and eating and share this with the children in their care. The way Deb speaks about food, eating and all bodies being amazing is Look, it's just truly inspiring. Deb really applies a weight-neutral, non-diet approach in supporting kids to grow into the bodies that are right for them. She has a particular skill at working with children and families who are struggling with fussy eaters, and I'm sure if you don't have one of those of your own, then I'm sure you've got some clients who are fussy eaters or who have children who they would say are fussy, uh, who might be problem feeders. She works with children with sensory feeding issues and children with weight concern. So uh, I, I really hope you enjoy this interview. It was such a pleasure to speak with Deb. And I, I was so lucky because I actually had the privilege of sitting down with Deb in her lounge room on her couch. So we sat there with a cup of tea and just had a really wonderful chat and I've known Deb for a long time um, but there were things about her and her work that I had never heard before so I hope you find it a really enjoyable conversation. So before we get into it, I just wanted to also draw your attention to some amazing online learning resources on the Mindful Dietitian. So there are some uh, there are some online training opportunities there for eating disorders run by the amazing Marcy Evans from the US. So this training is specifically for dietitians and she runs us through from woe to go from start to finish, all the different eating disorders, um, inpatient, outpatient, any of the dilemmas and, and, and tricky issues that you may come up with. And, um, and Marcy is extremely experienced, as many of you will know. And then there's some great online training with Megret Fletcher, who is not only a mindful eating specialist, she's also a diabetes specialist. So jump on and take a look at Megret's offerings. Um, Megret is also um, a past president of the Centre for Mindful Eating, who have so many um, online options including webinars and workshops and um, take your time trainings as I call them. And then there's my Food Body Mind series which is a three-part uh, online training specifically again for dietitians. Part one is mindful eating skills, part two is exploring appetite and then part three is food cues. So really incorporating all those ideas about um, when, when clients come to you wanting to know how to 
to um, how to how to navigate and negotiate our internal world and our external world when it comes to food, eating, appetite, and our bodies. So those online trainings can either be found on the website, which is themindfuldietitian.com.au, or otherwise it's pinned to the top of our closed Facebook page, The Mindful Dietitian, where, oh my gosh, I don't know about you, I'm having so much fun on that Facebook page, connecting with everybody, and I've started to add everybody's social media to my feed so that we can all support each other and really promote this, um, promote the wider um, message that we're all aiming to to send. So now let's uh, let's have an, enough of me. Let's move on to Deb. Uh, so Deb Blakely, again, dietitian from Brisbane, Australia, family food eating and body specialist. It's my enormous pleasure to be sitting here at the home of Deb Blakely from Kids Dig Food. Um, and the first question I have for you, Deb, is uh, tell us a little bit about your career trajectory to date. How did, how did you come to Kids dig food. Um, I've been a dietitian for 20 years this year. This is a bit of a um, <laughs> double-edged milestone. Um, I, about half of that time, I would say I've been working in the area of kids and families and infant nutrition, breastfeeding promotion um, for at least six or more years of that time. I was a dietitian um, or community nutritionist actually um, with Queensland Health and before that community dietitian um, and I've had kids dig food for about four years as a business. Um, so um, I guess the, the reason that uh, I decided to start the business was, you know, I was in a position where I no longer had my government job and I had to make a decision about what was really important to me and um, what my area of passion was. And I was given a, a great opportunity, I guess, to do something that was really uh, close to my heart. So, um, yeah, I decided at that time that infant nutrition was something that I was really passionate about, born out of, uh, I guess, my early feeding experiences with my little one who wasn't easy to feed um I guess the reasons why I went into dietetics in the first place when I if you'd asked me when I started my training I probably would have told you that it was because I love food and which you know most dietitians would say that I think um but, you know, I have my own sort of checkered history with food and with body image and, um, you know, I went through a period in my early, you know, so I guess childhood between, I, I guess about, about the ages of about 8 and 12 when my body was really changing and, and I would have considered that I was living in a larger than average body um, at that time and that had a really strong impact on me that kind of lasted well beyond that particular period of time um, and it was always, I guess, in the back of my mind that, um, you know, nutrition and my body and weight at that time was something that was, you know, I wasn't entirely happy with the way I was kind of dealing with it. Um, or, yeah, so it was, I guess, a bit of an exploration about that. Um, definitely when I started Kids Dig Food, it was around the particular 
challenges I was having at that time with my little one and she wasn't easy to feed you know she you know I had been a dietitian for about 10 years at the time when um when she was born and um I knew what I should feed her but I actually didn't really know how to feed her um, and she didn't like fruit and um, she wasn't eating vegetables and she wasn't eating the things that I knew I wanted her to have and that was that was a real um, wake-up call for me that hey there's something that I'm missing here yeah so one thing I do know about you is that you don't call yourself a paediatric dietitian. So tell us a little bit about how you define your role as a dietitian. Yeah, so um, I would class myself more as a family dietitian, um, mainly because I see the way that I work um, both in an individual way with individual families or in group education, at those education kind of settings, is that you know when you're working with children you can't separate the child from the family and um, whatever you're doing it's within the context and the construct of the family and so that's why I kind of call myself a family dietitian rather than a pediatric dietitian yeah so how much of the time would you see um, the child on their own versus uh, with at least one parent or with or with you know um, more members of the family? Oh, look, it, it varies a lot. Like in my clinical um, role, the way my clinics work is often I actually like to try and see the parents by themselves um, because, you know, particularly with very little children, you know, they, they shouldn't be concerned about food and what mum and dad are concerned about and all of that kind of stuff and we don't want to put that... Um, that there as an issue um besides I think the parents need that space and time to really reflect and have that time for themselves to really open up about what's been happening with food and eating um and I've started using uh video fairly recently to capture um, some of the things that are happening at mealtime which has been really really useful um to reflect on um, both with the parents and then, you know, prior to the appointment, sort of re- my, my own review um, of those videos about what's kind of happening and, and you know, where the biggest challenges might be, particularly in terms of that, that sort of mealtime um, family feeding relationship. Yeah, it's really interesting you talk about videos because I guess it captures real-time interaction, yeah. doesn't it? And, you know... Um, humans being social creatures we don't usually eat solo as children anyway and we eat within families so I know you speak a lot about dynamic within families um, and how that influences child feeding and child eating so can you can you talk a little bit about um, about feeding dynamics and um, and what and what are the most important elements of that Yeah, so um, I would say that for for every child that comes in, um, there's always an aspect of the family dynamic that that I guess is a carryover from the parents' early experiences with feeding Um, and, you know, as either children or adults or teenagers or whatever, you know, they every 
every member of that family brings their own history with food and eating um, and all of that has to be considered in that family context, you know, because what the parents' experience of food and eating is has a direct influence with how they feed and how um, then their children are, are um, experiencing food. Deb, what what do you do or how do you handle a situation where it becomes really obvious that the parents, either maybe one parent or both parents in a family that you're working with, um, have got their own history with dieting or, or very disrupted relationship with food, eating and their body? Um, I think that, I mean, it's so prevalent in society generally, isn't it, disordered relationships with food um, to varying degrees and I think um, to I guess quote you in some of the the language that that you've used in in your training and workshops that I've done with you um, is that we need to hold those things very lightly and um, to really work with the parents to help them to I guess understand where they're at with those things Um, You know, it's a sensitive issue because they haven't necessarily or usually they haven't come to see me for themselves. Um, They've come to, you know, for an issue that they have identified or a health professional might have identified with their child. Um, And often it's a a big leap to kind of then say, okay, some of this might actually be about me. And, you know, I, I think... To some extent, well, to for every family that the, the parents going to have some involvement in in what's what's happening. You know, we all have our histories with food. That's right. I have mine. I'm sure you have yours. That's right. yeah. uh, we all have family history around. You know what happened with food. Um, how food was. Um, you know how we interacted with it, and how others around us interacted with it. And, um, yeah, I think just with that real sense of compassion and and kindness, um, particularly for families where there's been quite a a strong history of uh, yo-yo dieting or uh, eating disordered or disordered eating disorders or disordered eating. Um, You know, that can have a huge impact on how, on their ability to feed Um, and, and they don't necessarily initially see that that's what they need to do to improve the situation yeah yeah it's interesting that you yeah it's it's really interesting that you raise that because um I know in today's workshop that we spent together we spoke a lot about trust and uh, we spoke about the elements that can undermine or interfere with trust. And certainly, as you mentioned, you know, our culture is saturated in ideas about how we shouldn't and can't trust ourselves and, you know, listen to this guru and that doctor and, you know, yada, yada. And maybe even sometimes, you know, dietitians as well, you know, we've been maybe, um, you know, experted to the point where, <laughs> you know, where we're saying to our clients, you know, listen to us rather than listen to yourselves in a way. So what do you think are ways that that actually we can place the locus of trust back in a parent's hands? Yeah, so um, one of the things that I will always start with when I'm doing a workshop for parents or, educate, you know, educators um, in the early childhood sector is, you know, who ask, to ask the question, who's the expert? 
on the child and get them to think about that and, and usually they'll, they'll, you know, they usually come to the answer pretty quickly and they'll either say it's the child or it's me as the parent, um, which is exactly the truth. And I think we can learn so much from parents about their children, about their little personalities and what's going to work for them and what's going to work for the family by putting them in the driver's seat of what they're doing um, with family feeding because, you know, I think being the expert doesn't help. Um, I don't think it really ever helps, but particularly within the family setting, it, you know, you can suggest things that might not necessarily work from one family to the next. You need to to put that locus of trust um, and, and, and the expert, you know, the level expert back onto the parent because they're the ones with the answers. So where does the facilitator of the answers for that particular family? Um, and, you know, one thing, I, a question I love to ask is what, how does your child best learn? generally what are they what do they love to do how like what really excites them and makes them really engaged with anything not just food um and getting them to apply what they know about their child um to food and and those conversations are usually the most valuable Mm -hmm. in in finding answers that are going to best suit that particular family yeah, that's really interesting. So you, so you were, so what you're trying to do is help the parent identify either you know personality traits or learning styles or something of their own child, so that then they can build a bridge for their child between um, you know food and a, and a helpful adaptive learning experience with food, yeah, yeah. with the idea that uh, would I understand it right in saying that we're not trying to use that as a form of controlling the child into eating a certain way, for example, I mean, of course, it's our favourite, eat more veggies, mm. but in what way do you help parents kind of explore these ideas without kind of being drawn into the idea that they sh- that their child should be eating in a certain way? Yeah, so it is about, you know, similar to working in the non-diet approach, um, I guess helping them readjust their expectations mm-hmm. around feeding um, because they come with expectations. So, for example, if it's a fussy eater around I want my child to eat just one more vegetable or, right. you know, any vegetable, I don't care what it is, um, <laughs> uh, you know, pretty much verbatim I think what I heard mm-hmm. in one of my clinic sessions this week. Um uh, or it might be, you know, I want my child to be um, a normal weight, you know, or I want my child to um, be able to, I don't know, go to a party and mm. eat whatever or whatever it might be. And and those expectations place a lot of um, stress and pressure on both the parent and the child. Um, So I think, you know, just talking to them and helping them understand through the process what is a realistic expectation of your child, Um, long-term expectations but also short-term expectations as well, like from meal to meal. So I think, again, working on from that premise of what are your child's strengths really allows them to see, you know, particularly personality traits like, with my fussy eaters, a lot of the, the 
typical types of personality traits you see with fussy eaters are the really independent little kids who (laughs) can dig their heels in and, you know, they're not the kind of ones that kind of, oh, yeah, you know, just take a bite and they will and they'll, you know, they might might like it or they might not but they'll have a go. Um, No, these are the kids that will throw a tantrum for an hour and, Mm. you know, if they don't want to do something, they're not going to do it. And so, okay, well, what's the positive of those personality traits? Well, they're really independent. They like to do things for themselves. So guess what? Let's let them do some stuff themselves that they should have control over. Um, And that's, that's, I guess, where some of the work of Ellen Satter comes in. So um, I guess for those listeners who don't know Ellen Satter, um, she's a very well-known dietitian in the US um, who pioneered Ellen Satter's Division of Responsibility in Feeding. Um, do you want me to explain a little bit oh, about that? Yeah, please do. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, no matter how many times I hear it, it just, it just makes so much sense. So, yeah. and I love the way you explain this. So, yeah. Go ahead. So, yeah. look, for me, when I discovered Division of Responsibility, um, it was a game changer for me mm. um, in the way I was feeding my daughter and she was very young at the time and she wasn't a kid who would just eat anything even from six months, you know, when most kids typically will eat anything and everything. We kind of never had that. Um, but really it's what it does is create very clear boundaries around um, what the parent's job in the feeding relationship is and what the child's job is. And what I can say about every family that I work with, regardless of what the issue is that they've come to see me for, is that there's always a disconnect between those things. And there's always either the parents trying to do the child's jobs or they've handed over their jobs to the, the things that they should be doing to their child. So, you know, there's an imbalance and that's where the, um, the drama and the fights and the arguments and the stress and anxiety come in. Um, so the parents' roles are to be in charge of the what, the when and the where of feeding. So basically creating a nice sense of structure around feeding with autonomy. Um, the auto- autonomy comes with the child's um, roles in the feeding relationship, which are to decide the how much and indeed whether or not to eat at, at given times. So, um, you know, and this is where, you know, there's a little bit of a difference between, um, I guess, what we might expect from an adult in that, um, yes, we want children to learn to be flexible eaters and competent eaters and intuitive eaters or mindful eaters or whatever word you want to put onto it, but children do need to have boundaries around um, so that they can then make those decisions. So we do use... Um, I guess, uh, boundaries around time, that there's times for eating and times not for not eating. Um, yeah. And then letting the children sort of discover their own um, hunger and fullness within those those areas. But, you know, there's flexibility there because, again, this is, comes back to where the parents, the experts, so, you know, they'll know when is their child's best times for eating through the day? When are their child's worst times for eating through the day? So some of what we work on is um, using what we know about how our children and when our children are at their best for eating, how can we then apply 
um, you know, some goals around maximising those things. So again, you're you're um, you're inviting parents to draw upon their child's strengths, but yeah. also to draw upon their own strengths and wisdom too. Because um, you know we have even as adults we've got better times of day where we're more functional or we uh, we have better attention spans or where we are more able to attend to our own body cues um you know and and certainly I mean I, I notice in my own kids when they're tired their appetites are not great or, or they're not really able to attend to those to those cues. So, um, you know, and that's and that's one way. I, I really like the way that you talked about. You know, we're trying to keep a a child's um, intuitive sense of be, being able to attend to their own needs intact, whilst promoting structure. And I guess a lot of well, family therapists would say, "Gosh, that's you know that that's a, that's a really a subsection of family therapy, isn't it? You know, yeah. systems therapy, where um, you know where we're we're aiming to provide a safe and contained environment where kids know what to expect at any one at any one you know period of time, and they know um, to expect food." Yeah, and they can trust us that we're going to, I think Ellen Satter always says to um, feed, be fed faithfully, so feed your child faithfully. Um, and I love that terminology because it's so nurturing and, and, um, and where, you know, regardless of it, if a child's come to see me for weight concern in terms of um, perception of overweight or um, being in a bigger body or if they've come for the opposite, um, concern um, feeding children faithfully is always what we come back to and and I think the lovely thing about division of responsibility is it doesn't actually matter you can have two very diverse children in the same family and yet the application of that model suits everybody um, because it really comes back to supporting the child to um, retain their natural and innate sense of hunger and fullness and tuning into their bodies and which is exactly what the non-diet approach is about as well it fits really beautifully Um, yeah but also I think it also challenges parents to reflect on their own styles of eating and again that's a really good opportunity to kind of explore that and you know gently I guess gently, gently um, bring that into part of what, you know, what we're working on. Yeah. I've got one question for you, Deb, and I hope you don't mind me putting you on the spot. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know whether you feel like it's possible for a child to, to heal or to sustain an intact relationship with food, eating and their body if one or both parents have got such a disconnected relationship themselves? I'm, I'm curious to know your thoughts on that. That's that's a really hard question um, and my honest answer would be I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I, I would like to think that we can still make a huge difference to the family. Um you know, knowing that every person comes with their own history with food and some of our histories require a lot more 
effort to heal and and work to heal than than others um you know but it all it all starts with awareness doesn't it i think that um the more parents even if they're still struggling with their own issues around food and eating and a lot of families are you know there's a lot of families where parents or one or both parents aren't eating with the rest of the family because they're on a diet that requires them to eat at different times or maybe they're just having shakes or, you know, whatever the diet rules might be, um, they they still have the opportunity to be reflecting on those things and, and I think we have a really big opportunity to explore with them what that what seeing that what their children you know are gaining from seeing them do that um which can be very confronting very confronting because often they don't see that as connected so they it's like well you know i need to do this for me and i need to lose the baby weight or or whatever it might be um uh however you know a lot of families that i've worked with um some with very, very severe and long-standing and deeply ingrained issues with food and eating, particularly eating disorders and um, quite sort of dis- quite disordered eating behaviours. Um, that's actually the one of the reasons underlying that they've come to seek help. Um, but sometimes you don't find that out at the initial consult. It might be you know, several consults in that they actually feel comfortable enough to disclose those things, um, and when and when that when that does come out, you know, I think that we have a really big opportunity to support those people and those parents to um, to feel good about the fact that they're even there in the first place, and and you know, regardless of what you know what work they may have to do to kind of repair things for themselves I think you know awareness is is the first step isn't it to change yeah so if it becomes if this becomes apparent um would you usually suggest that um a parent or both parents or whoever you know, it is in the family that's really struggling with maybe a, a disconnected relationship with food and eating, or has a has a really um, poor poor body image. Would you um, refer them on to somebody else, or how, how would you typically handle that whilst trying to help them feel safe and contained and cared for? Yeah, um, look, it can. It's a difficult conversation to have, um, particularly when that's likely not the reason that they're they're, yeah that that you're seeing them um and I think you know again treading lightly with that and and building trust and and respect and rapport and just you know I guess letting them um explore the options of what of what's available to them um certainly you know there's people that that I have referred on to other um, other therapy sort of modalities, psychology, and um, you know, wonderful, 
wonderfully well-trained psychologists in, in, you know, that have an experience with eating disorders or, or maybe even a different dietitian who has more experience than me with working with eating disorders, um, I think is extremely valuable. Um, and But, you know, it's kind of holding their hands and helping to maintain that relationship until they're ready to do that. And to be honest, sometimes families you know sometimes that's too much and um I have had several families that do disconnect at a point Mm -hmm. when things have gotten you know they they kind of come with okay let's deal with this problem and then all of a sudden the family feeding Mm -hmm. you know when when the issues with the family feeding dynamic become totally apparent that it's way bigger than they really anticipated um there's a sense of oh this is this is really big here, yeah. um, and sometimes families do disconnect, and that that can be really disheartening as a as a a therapist. I always like to um, leave the door open yes. for those families, and you know sometimes they you know will re-engage down the track when they feel they're able to, and sometimes they don't. Um, but what I like to be able to do is to know that I've kind of planted a really gentle seed um, of, um, I guess, a way forward that they might be able to reflect on for the future, even if they're not ready to to go to that place at that particular time. I actually think it's really brave to be willing to plant a seed because you're actually taking a risk that they will disconnect and that it becomes too much. Um, you know, and whatever is too much is not for us to decide or for us to be able to, um, you know, measure or understand, you know, however much is too much is for the parent to really understand. But I think I think it takes a lot of courage because to be willing to let somebody go but be really aligned with um, your values or be aligned with, um, you know, what is required for for body healing or for healing any kind of relationship is you know it's really courageous but i know you you certainly had this experience of of people coming back to you after you've planted a seed so what has that kind of taught taught you about the value of having that conversation yeah i think um yeah, you do run the risk of losing clients i guess and you know from a business perspective that's not great um but I guess in terms of my professional integrity, um, I would rather that happen um, and for people to re-engage with me because they're only going to re-engage if they trust you. Right. And so if they're re-engaging, that's a sign that that you, you were on the right track um, and, you know, um, that they come back, they come back when they're ready, and that that's okay, mm-hmm. you know. Because um, uh, feed, you know, again, feeding and feeding our kids is such a um, a personal thing, and and parents, and particularly, well, all parents, but I think particularly mothers, because mothers do tend to to take the lion's share of the feeding role. Um, feeding is linked with love. It's linked with love of our child, and and if we perceive for whatever reason that we're not doing that well for whatever reason um there's a real sense of I'm a bad parent and I'm doing everything wrong and I've failed and um you know I'm not 
loving or caring for my child the way I should and uh, there's a lot of emotion attached with that. Yeah, it certainly can undermine people's confidence, can't it? You know, so, um, you know, wanting your child to be a confident eater requires, I guess, a sense of confidence in from a parent, you know, in, in those early years. So, so I guess factors that undermine a parent's confidence. I mean, our culture is saturated in um, quote-unquote experts telling parents what to do in all areas of life, which is, you know, it, it draws us away from being able to respond to our kids um, in a way that best matches what they actually need, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think a lot of parents um, do get tied up in wanting to be perfect parents and mm-hmm. feed their children perfectly and um, overly concerned um, sometimes about nutrition, dare mm-hmm. I say it. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, I can't believe you just said that. Uh, yeah, and, because I, and I think it does, I think it actually inhibits a lot of parents mm. rather than, than helps them. Um, I, I don't think that we give most people enough credit for their nutrition knowledge. I think, I think most people um, do have a pretty good sense of what they should be eating. Um, it's the application of that that is really hard. Um, and so, yeah, I think we, we can do a lot to to really boost their confidence in the things that they're doing really well um, and focus on the areas that they want to focus on that are really important to them and, and work from that place. Oh, this is all such so interesting talking to you about the um you know the the minute of of eating behavior and and child and and parent relationships i'm curious to know what lies in the future for you because we spoke earlier and you told me a little bit about um yeah what your plans are for for yourself and and for kids dig food so tell us a little bit about that oh i i tend to have my my fingers in lots of pies Fiona and I'm, I'm trying to take a few of them out of pies um really so that I can focus on the area that I'm super passionate about and at the moment that's really I think I described it earlier to you as being a bit of a disruptor in the area of early childhood nutrition and particularly in the early childhood education space um we have and most children will spend at least some of their time in in the care of other people outside their own family, and um, and those educators uh, tend to have very basic nutrition training and knowledge, and sometimes none at all. Um, but they are super influential in um, in feeding. They, you know, particularly a child who might spend five days in childcare. Um, you know, they've, they're doing a lot of the feeding and um, I, I'm really passionate about um, supporting them, not only with what children should be eating. Again, I think they get a lot of that in the training that they do get, sure. if any, but not a lot of support on in how to feed children um, and how we can help children better develop a healthy relationship with food. Um 
I think there's huge opportunity to do that better, and not only for the children in their care, but you know these are predominantly young young women of childbearing age who either have children themselves or will soon have children, although there are many more and more men going into that area too, but it's still a very female-dominated industry. Um, so I just I, I do have this really strong belief that we can change the trajectory for our children um, in terms of their health through um, just starting and teaching families that there's a we can do things differently than the way we may have experienced food and eating and we don't have to um, have our children buy into the diet culture that's so pervasive in our society and that affects everything that we do um, and how we engage with food uh, because it, it, that's learned, you know, that children don't, aren't born with that sense of feeling bad about food or feeling bad about their bodies or, you know, pious if they've eaten a certain food or, or whatever it is. That That is 100% learned. And um, I, I guess my message is to make that message more known uh, amongst that particular a group of people who are so influential in our in our young children's early experiences. I love the word disruptor, um, and it just occurred to me that maybe one of the reasons I love it is because what you're what you're describing really is disrupting the disrupting in a way, you know, because because. We're, we, we're, want, we're wanting to um, maintain a sense of connection and disrupt the diet disruption, you know, yeah. the transgenerational um, messaging that is, you know, perpetuated by the narrative of, of the diet culture. So you're, you're trying to disrupt um, the unhelpful messages whilst strengthening resilience yeah. and strengthening trust you know, within whole families. So the work you're doing is really, it can really change not only individuals and families but has the capacity to change whole communities and and hopefully a whole, you know, generation of, of, of human beings really. Um, so I'm curious to know, you know, what are your, what are your dreams for the children of the present? That, they that they can trust themselves that it you know it comes back to trust that they can trust themselves with food yeah. that food it remains a sense of joy and delight and enjoyment for them um, that you see like when I work when I do workshops and hands-on sort of cooking and early food experience kind of workshops with under fives it's all about joy it's all about having fun and we don't talk about health or healthy foods or good foods or bad foods or you know any of that we just have fun with food and um and I think that's what we lose when we translate that that diet mentality and the diet culture and and the fear of food I think ultimately 
it's a fear that people are fearful of eating, of eating the wrong thing, of not eating healthily. They feel guilty when they eat something that they perceive as unhealthy. Like it's just, it's it's so counterproductive to health, all of it, mm-hmm. that um, and people don't see it for what it is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's our role as, I guess, being non-diet dietitians or um, Hayes dietitians or whatever, I guess, terminology you re- that resonates with you is that it doesn't have to be like this. It doesn't have to be like this for our kids. I don't want that for my daughter. Mm-hmm. I don't want the same thing for her that that I had growing up. And, you know, I, I don't think I had a particularly awful childhood, but diet culture, the more I reflect on my early experience with um, my family, the more I realise how ingrained even so diet culture was and and that that saddens me um that you know I can reflect on on particularly the women but also the men in my family and and their interactions with food and you know my my beautiful 90 something year old grandmother who passed away um earlier this year and she she ended up with you know old age dementia and but she never forgot that she had her sugarine in her tea every time she had a cup of tea. Um, but she loved sweets, you know, and, oh, you know, just, you know, it was all always a guilty pleasure, you know, and, you know, how wonderful I think it would have been if she'd gone through her life just embracing that. And, and, that, that, and that's what I hope, you know, for my 10-year-old, that she can actually get to 90 and, not worry about having sugar in in her tea. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's interesting that you know. I, I guess I, I'm curious to ask at, um, you know, at the, at the celebration of your of your grandmother's life, was there any mention of her weight or her appearance? Absolutely not. She was so much more than that. So much more than that. And yeah, yeah, we don't we don't remember those things about people. That's not what matters. Um, yeah, I've never thought about it like that, but yeah. I, I think that um, particularly, you know, in our age group and we're, we're the same age, that, um, you know, our I guess our parents are, are getting older and I've noticed that a lot of people around our age group are, are becoming more aware of, you know, the ageing process and, you know, how much how much longer do we want to feel consumed by by thinking about and exerting our energy on controlling or on efforts to control our our food and essentially our bodies really so and it's probably we're probably in an age group too where we might be attending a few more funerals and attending a few more of those um, you know end of life events where it can become quite poignant where we consider you know um what are the elements of people's life that we that we do speak about and and that like you said, we're, we're so much more than just a body, you know, we're so much more than whether we're, um, you know, whether than our, than our eating patterns or our eating habits or our eating choices, you know, it's so much more to us than that. Um, Deb, tell us a little bit about where we can find you. 
Um, yeah, so probably the best place to connect with me is um, like in the social media space is Facebook. I do have Instagram, but I'm not – I think I'm across too many platforms really. <laughs> I've got a bit of everything, but Facebook's is where I mostly hang out. Um, and then uh, my website, which is kidsdigfood.com.au. Um, yeah, they're, they're probably the best – all my contact details are on the website. Um, I love talking to other mm. colleagues. I love any opportunity to – um, expand my knowledge and and talk to other like-minded like-minded people um i do i probably i don't know if i should or shouldn't mention this but i do have quite a, a big um student volunteer program through with, with the business um so i i do use um nutrition dietetic students to help me better facilitate the, the hands-on workshops that I do just so we can have more hands on the ground or hands you know hands on deck when we're cooking and prepping food with under fives and, and school age kids which is really fun and um, I do give back to them with um, oh, professional development and, yep. and stuff like that so um, if you are, yeah, if you are a student or a new grad, and and that's something that you're interested in, then by all means, by all means, contact me, and we can add you to the volunteer list. Um, yeah, yeah. So one last question I have for you is, you know, there's a lot of um, a lot of dietitians, and increasingly so, um, in you know, who, who are feeling really passionate about the non-diet approach, health at every size, intuitive and mindful eating. Um, so what would, what would you say, what would some advice that you would give to somebody who's a new grad that might be interested in, um, in, in paediatric nutrition or what they understand to be paediatric nutrition? Um, you know, with, with all the years you've accumulated and the depth and um, breadth of knowledge that you have is there any kind of piece of advice that you would give to a new grad or somebody who has got a strong interest in this area um yeah just to always consider the wider um impact of what you're doing I guess because like I said right at the beginning like you can't you can't separate the child or, or the the reason for a maybe a referral if it's an individual client from what's happening in the, in the rest of the family. Um, it's, you know, we do, I think we deal with, we deal with communities and we deal with families all of the time. Everyone has a family regardless if you're working with um, an older person or an elderly person, um, you know, a parent, you know, even a single person has a wider family or community that that's behind them. Um, and, you know, I think some of the richest knowledge that I gain from my clients is actually those conversations around what's happening um, in the feeding environment. And because we rarely, for most of us, we rarely eat all of our meals alone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, eating is such a social kind of thing. And I kind of look, the way I describe, I guess, the obesity epidemic, in inverted commas, mm-hmm. is, yes. you know, I, I when I talk to my families and when I talk to groups and in my workshops and educators, I don't see it as an obesity epidemic. I actually see it as an epidemic of disconnect with food. Um, I think we, we live in a society where the majority of people 
are totally disconnected with food and with their bodies and you know our jobs is our job is to actually help them reconnect mm-hmm. with with food and with their bodies yeah love it <laughs> yeah what a what a beautiful message you know that that um you know so some themes we've really talked about today are you know reconnection and trust and you know they they are the essence of the human experience, aren't they? You know when we're when we're um, disconnected and mistrusting of ourselves, we we don't enjoy a, a full and meaningful um, experience in life. You know we can feel quite isolated and alone and away from other people. So, um, and I guess as as a group of dietitians who we're, we're all very passionate about helping people, aren't we? You know, we, we really want to help. Um, and it seems like from what you've talked about that you've really clarified for yourself what that means to you, what what truly helping people in not just a, um, you know, a one-on-one kind of consultation perspective, but what that means from a broader perspective for you. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and it's ta- it's a process. Yes, I'm sure absolutely. it is for you too. Um, and I'm sure I, I will, you know, if you ask me that question in a year's time or two years' time, I'll probably give you a different answer. <laughs> um, you know, for the moment, that's that's where I see I can make the biggest impact and um, it's what I love to do. And, um, yeah, I hope, I hope that, um, you know, I can present that message in my unique way and I think, Every single one of us has the opportunity to present the message in our own unique way and I think that only strengthens the message because the message is going to resonate differently with different people. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I really like that idea actually and maybe one way we can do that, especially amongst, you know, our health at every size and non-diet kind of crowd is that um, one way I've heard that it can be quite effective in maintaining consistency of message is, you know, sharing each other's stuff. So, for example, um, you know, I, I know when you've written something for families that I have a certain audience that is, you know, parents and families, but that's not my kind of speciality area. And it's so great to be able to promote you and to promote your business because you're we're also promoting each other in that process and we're also promoting the wider message of yeah. of body peace and on the food peace so maybe that's one way we can kind of you know just remember that you don't have to reinvent the wheel when it comes to this stuff yeah absolutely um I, i'm all for sharing I, th- I think there's enough there's enough yeah. um there's enough clients out there there's <laughs> yes. enough groups to talk to there's enough of everything mm-hmm. um and uh, you know I, the the best lessons i've learned in working with um the groups that i work with and the individuals that i work with have come from other colleagues mm-hmm. and and that's a continual and learning process for me and i love sharing your stuff i love sharing uh, lots of other people's stuff that i know are in you know our um, non-diet community um, because that they present and you present things in a slightly different way to the way I do and and I see that as a total strength um, mm-hmm. and yeah I'm, I'm all for sharing mm-hmm. yeah. because of course with different audiences or different um, even individuals different um, 
style re- styles resonate. Yeah. You know, some people love the ranty style of thing, which is, you know, it's kind of my speciality apparently. Um, and then other people prefer more the scientific approach or the kind of data-driven um, you know, lots of data research says this and evidence says that and blah, blah, blah. Um, and um, other people love, you know, kind of more lived experience type of reflective pieces. And I think yeah. if we can draw upon our strengths when we're writing or speaking or, you know, we're sharing stuff in the media that, um, you know, to keep our message consistent but to present it, I really like what you said about, you know, doing it in our own style. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, look, I think there's huge this is an area that like I think nutrition has to go in this direction I I think we've kind of come not full circle that's probably the wrong word but um I think what we have to share is really unique and oh it's unique at the moment hopefully it won't be unique soon (laughs) it'll be it'll be oh yeah yeah those those fun diet people um yeah and people will kind of know what we're about um um yeah there's this huge opportunity i think for us to make a big difference um because what what we know from the research is that um traditional methods of of health um and health promotion just haven't aren't working so we have to do things differently Um, you know, if I was to barrel in and, and talk to my groups about the five food groups and what kids should be eating, honestly, I would lose them in the first five minutes. Um, if I was to preach to parents about what they should be feeding their kids, I would lose them in the first probably 30 seconds, you know. Um, so, yeah, anything that we can do to to build people up, build on their strengths, Um work from a place of um, security and, and creating uh, low anxiety environments like we definitely definitely work um, to create low anxiety environments in the workshops that we do so that children are supported to explore food at their own pace um, rather than you know and sometimes that that needs some education of the educators because you know they're like well just take a bite you know just you know come on your mother wants to see this I need to get a photo um you know um that that can be something that actually inhibits children mm. from their exploration. So absolutely. Um, so that can happen both in a family setting around a meal table, mm-hmm. but it can also happen at, at childcare as well. Right. So um, those messages are coming from lots of different places. So, mm-hmm. you know, the disruption that we talked about earlier is about, mm, is that the best way to do things? Is that actually going to result in the outcome that because it's intended in in the best way like the way it's intended is to encourage children to explore but is that the best way to do things and for a lot of children it's not well it's interesting you say that because I guess it's um the intent might be to explore but actually the child might not be receiving that message in that way at all. You know, the child might be receiving the message of, oh, here's an adult that wants me to eat this food. Yeah, and if they're trying so hard to get me to eat it, my God, what's wrong with it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know know Ellen, I heard Ellen Satter somewhere along the line either say or, um, uh, you know, 
yeah, yeah right yeah. about something similar um yeah it's 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 quite interesting and, and the thing is education I think this is where a lot of education research is really useful um, I've got a beautiful friend of mine who's an exercise physiologist who developed a model called fitracy gosh I could talk another hour about that um, but really her her father is actually an education academic um, Dr Brian Camborn and the fitracy model is bringing together um, four constructs of how children learn so what we know from education theory and what we know from health theory so that's around um, you know we learn best in low anxiety learning environments we don't learn when we're in that fight flight flight response um, we learn best with parent involvement so those carers that are most important to us um, learning with us and doing things around us um, there's always a literacy component to the workshops that I run and gosh I always no matter which ones I do I always forget the fourth one um, low anxiety parent involvement um, uh, literacy development and no. <laughs> oh gosh I might have you might have to put that in the notes that's okay <laughs> I'll put a link to, I'll put a link to fitracy in the notes yeah, that's um, awesome. yeah that would that would be good yeah. is there any other kind of um major links or places that you would recommend dietitians go to to learn a bit more about um about a family feeding or you know you mentioned ellen ellen yeah, satter so look, I, I would definitely say ellen mm. satter's um stuff is, stop shop, isn't it? yeah it's pretty amazing yeah yeah and that look there are a lot of, there are um a few other dietitians around the place that I kind of follow um, that I think are doing some really interesting stuff. I, I love Marianne Jacobson's oh, yes. work yep. as well. Um, she's got some really cool ebooks. Our own um, Eve Reed um, from Sydney um, has a beautiful book that helps families really struggling to apply all of the components of division of responsibility in feeding um, and, and break that down. Mm -hmm. And that's called Do You Have a Fussy Eater? It's a little ebook. Of hers, um, that's a really good resource. But um, you know, a lot of what I do is come back to Ellen Satter's yeah. primary work, and I think if if people are interested in the area, um, that's the the best place to start. Yeah, it really should be. I mean, I I, I think there's a couple of texts that are pretty essential for any dietitian um, and probably Ellen Satter, you know, Secrets of Feeding a Healthy Family, yeah, I think yeah. is um, is one of the texts. And there, there's so much in it that is not just about feeding kids. There's so much in it that's like, oh, she's not really talking about feeding kids. Mm. She's talking about nurturing or she's talking about nourishing ourselves or she's talking yeah. about self-care, yeah. you know. So Ellen's, um, she's very smart, as we know, um, and she's a family therapist. She's a family so, therapist, exactly. Yeah, so, so um, you know. she's coming from that sort of family con construct. And I just remembered the fourth component oh, of literacy, which I don't know how I forgot this one, which is strengths-based. So, again, oh, yeah. it comes back to a lot of the stuff we were talking about before about mm. building on the child's strengths, mm. building on the parents' strengths mm. as well. Um, nice. So, yeah, so low anxiety, parent involvement, strengths-based and literacy. Oh, so that's what we cover. Yeah, in the, in the workshops. And you can apply that um, to lots of different aspects of health. So, for example, uh, when Brody, so Brody Campbell, who's the exercise physiologist, would run literacy-based workshops, her focus obviously is on movement. So she applies those four principles then to 
the way she kind of um, engages with the children around mm. movement and yeah. It's beautiful. Mm. Oh, Deb, thank you so much because it's just been such a pleasure chatting with you. We always have such wonderful conversations, but it's been great to sit here with our cups of tea, like little old ladies that we're not. We're definitely not little old ladies. Now, we haven't got blankets on quite yet. We Um, had wine before. We did have wine before, (laughs) yeah. And, uh, yeah, so thank you so much, Deb, for, for being here. It's just such a pleasure. Thank you. It's great to chat. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Hope you enjoyed it and please join us again next time. Just a reminder, we can be found at www.themindfuldietitian.com.au or you'll find over a thousand of us now over on the closed Facebook page, The Mindful Dietitian. See you there soon. Bye.